nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, aneconomyofone.com. Aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One. You got a question or comment, want to email me, you can email that to producer at aneconomyofone.com. Producer at aneconomyofone.com. Well, it happened. We got a new president. President Trump is now in office, and I expect tomorrow morning we're going to start seeing some real action on his part, and we'll probably start to see more ramped-up opposition to uh, president. You know, I've been around a long time. I've seen a lot of presidents come into office, and a lot of presidents go out of office, and I don't remember such animosity, such blatant disrespect for the president of the United States as uh, we've had with President-elect Trump and now President Trump. You got people wanting to start impeachment proceedings before he was even sworn in. And the hypocrisy of that is, is beyond measure. Think of what would have happened, what the outrage would have been if when President Obama first took office, if people would have said the things about him that have been said about Donald Trump. Now, I'm not going to explore the stupidity of people who refuse to show up at the inauguration and respect America and the tradition of peaceful transition of power from one leader to the next. Um, I think that goes without saying. I think most of us have been sufficiently disgusted with these children. One of the things I, I did think about was, you know, our whole lives we were taught, and it was kind of innate, to respect people in Congress, to respect senators and respect representatives, because these are really smart people, and they have a very important job in representing us in this country and in the world. But as I've gotten older, I've figured out uh, most of these people aren't that sharp. There's some smart ones in, in Congress, no question about it. Some good people in there, but I don't think their thought process and their statements and that kind of stuff are infallible. I, I think they they lack, some of them certainly lack a certain amount of wisdom. They certainly lack a certain amount of concern for the country as a whole, and they're concerned about their own power and their own politics, their own reelection, their own image, their own 15 minutes of fame on, on the news for, for doing something radical, that kind of stuff. As I've gotten older, I, I've come to realize that, you know what, I'm just as smart as they are, and my feelings and my thoughts about this country and what I think should happen 
and should be put in place are not out of line just because they disagree with a senator or a representative. It's sad to see because there have been many discrepancies in past elections going all the way back to I don't know, probably the second one after uh, after Washington that, you know, there, there's been been problems in the election and the electorate, but never have I personally experienced such division, such animosity, such hate openly expressed without recourse. And I find it appalling that this is what we've shown the world. And quite honestly, I think the the respect the world has for us has been diminishing. And I think some of these displays further diminish that respect in the world. That being said, we have a new president. It's President Trump. And what's he going to do? Uh, no matter what he does, two things. One, he's going to be under the microscope. And two, no matter what he does, it's going to be wrong. The, the mainstream media, the press, he's not going to be able to sneeze without somebody writing a headline being against him. I'm constantly reminded of Governor Mike Huckabee's phrase. I heard him say on, on one of the talk shows that Trump could walk on water and the headline would re read, Donald Trump can't swim. So it, it just no matter what, he's not going to do what's right in the eyes of many of these people. That being said, those first 100 days are going to be critical because the people who elected him are going to be watching very, very closely. And people are going to want some executive orders kicked out right away, nullifying some of the executive orders that President Obama put in place. It's one of the few things a, a new president can do, and that's nullify previous executive orders. They cannot nullify pardons or uh, commuting of sentences, that kind of stuff. And we've seen what President Obama has done in his last couple weeks in office as far as those pardons. Some of those are very offensive, and I think that's on purpose. I think they were meant to be offensive. I think it's kind of a flip the finger to us on the way out. But what can President Trump do without Congress? The most important thing he can do is the Trump administration will have uh, a lot of discretion in revising regulations that were put in place during the Obama administration. Now, they got he's got to follow federal rulemaking procedures, no question about that. But I think on regulatory matters, he's going to uh, start modifying a lot of the Obama administration's regulatory initiatives. Uh, he'll have a lot of leeway on trade. He'll be able to uh, put some tariffs in there and some international trade rules, and we'll see what he does there. Now, you know my position, not a big tariff guy. I think that's counterintuitive to the free market. I understand the motivation, but I don't necessarily agree with it. I think one of the big things he's going to attack is immigration. Now, he's got a lot of discretion there, but it's not unlimited. And he, he can't do everything around Congress. But I think that he's going to start doing a lot 
and nullify some of those executive orders that President Obama signed around immigration. One of the biggest things is he'll be able to accomplish with a Republican Congress, with the support of Republicans in Congress, and that's presidential nominations. So uh, Supreme Court justices, presidential nominees in the Senate, there's a lot of positions he'll be able to put in place, and with Republican support, he'll be able to uh, affect the court system for a long time. Are they going to repeal the Affordable Care Act? I think so. But uh, as we talked to Senator Jim DeMint last week, I think it will be a, uh, a repeal and then over the next uh, year or two, a replace policy by policy and slowly get that fixed. But some of that has uh, been put in place through executive orders. And I think he will probably use executive orders to reverse some of the more egregious regulations. We'll see. Coming up next, John Whitehead from the Rutherford Institute will be joining me. You won't want to miss that. Look forward to talking with John next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is John Whitehead. He's a constitutional attorney. He's the president of the Rutherford Institute and author of Battlefield America, The War on the American People. And his previous book, award-winning, A Government of Wolves, The Emerging American Police State. John, welcome back to An Economy of One. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's been a little while since we talked, certainly before the election. And... I wanted to start locally and kind of spiral out from there. Just recently, our governor, John Kasich, signed some new law. I don't think it's gone into effect yet, but it will soon, HB 347, about civil asset forfeiture, one of the Mm -hmm. uh, topics that we've talked to you many, many times. You're familiar with Ohio's new law, I assume, and what do you think of it? Well, uh, it depends. Uh, you know, with the new Justice Department, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, it depends on how strong the police unions who are pushing for, you know, uh, mm-hmm. what I would call overwhelming asset, asset forfeiture. And if, if your readers, I mean, excuse me, your listeners don't know exactly what it is, but asset forfeiture, forfeiture is where you can be charged with a crime, simply be arrested now. They can take your car, they can take cash, they can take your home, and you have to go back into court to fight for it. It's a large monetary boon for police across the country, and believe it or not, in some areas, I checked in to see what it was being spent for, the money, and it's for <laughs> carnivals, clowns, right. uh, taking people out for pizza, things like that. But uh, a lot of innocent people go back into court seeking um, their you know, their property back, but right. never get it. So uh, it's, like I said, it's a huge thing. I just hope that it can be limited, but I'm not sure with um, the new administration what's going to happen. We're just going to have to wait and see. But, again, it's one of the most egregious things that I've seen happen in the country in terms of taking Americans' property. In fact, it basically says that you really don't own your car or your home now. Right. Some of the people that have read the Ohio legislation say that they have put in provisions that override the equitable sharing program, 
with the federal government. If it's over, well, one, it has to be over $100,000 to be part of that. And they say the law is pretty strong. So at least I think we're moving in the right direction. I think, yeah, I think local state action, I'm I'm a big advocate of that. People say, what can you do on the national level? Working with the federal government is very, very difficult because it's huge. They don't listen to us. And in my opinion, folks, I'm sorry, some of you are going to disagree. It doesn't really represent us. No, you're talking to someone who has sued the president of the United States. I've sued the federal government. I've worked in and out of Washington for over 40 years, and I know how corrupt it is. In fact, there was a 2014 university study by Princeton University. They studied 20 years of legislation, laws, and policies passed in Washington, D.C., and the professors came to the conclusion that we don't really have a representative government anymore. We're ruled by an oligarchy, they called it, a money elite. And uh, if you look into the your local congressman uh, and the congressman they're in so-called our so-called representatives in Congress over half of them are millionaires so they have little connection with the average citizen out there who's struggling to get by and you know, more and more I talk with young people who who are getting college educations now and they're making around twenty thousand a year and they're I mean there is no way they identify with us so I think the way to move is state-wise and local-wise and starts talking back and saying we're not going to do this we're not going to allow well we're not going to allow under the national defense authorization act which obama put into motion the military to come in and arrest and detain your citizens and put them in a concentration camp basically where you won't see your family or your lawyer just simply because he says you're an extremist and now they set up an anti-propaganda Center under the National Defense Authorization Act for so-called anti-government speech. So we're living in a country that uh, the president, even the new president we have, which some people have a lot of hope in, hopefully he won't put, use this type of uh, power, but again, don't bet on it. Yeah, well, and preparing to chat with you today, I kind of reread through your book, Battlefield America. Terrific book, by the way. We'll put it on our website again to encourage people to read that. But one of the things we talked about last time that was very disturbing to me, and it's hung with me since our last conversation, and that's how many Americans simply disappear in this country every year. Yeah. About 1.5 million. It's called, and it's uh, so-called civil commitments. Uh, let me give you a case we actually handled several years ago. A 26-year-old Marine was writing anti-Obama Facebook posts, whatever, but he wasn't threatening. He didn't even own a weapon, by the way. Uh, on a Saturday morning, he was at home. He had just gotten through jogging. He didn't have his shirt on. He heard noise outside. He looks out his window, and he's a Marine, so he's a student. I'm a former military officer, so I'm always, when I hear something pull in front of my house, I go out and take a look. <laughs> That's right. He had eight vehicles pulled around his house. The military, you know, military type guys running towards his house, SWAT teams, people in dress clothes. Come to find out it was Department of Homeland Security agents, FBI. They pulled him from his home and put him in a mental hospital for Facebook posts. He didn't even own a weapon, by the way. The only thing he had in his house that could, could have hurt him by was a parry knife he cut his fruit with. Uh-huh. They didn't have a search warrant. They put him in a mental hospital. Uh, his mother called everybody. Finally, she got a hold of us. All different organizations, they turned her down, and we filed a lawsuit and got him out in a week. But 1.5 million people a year disappear in those facilities. And um, I had a former NSA agent, by the way, who came by to visit me. And uh, he used to serve, he's by what the government's doing, but he said, uh, we're following the Soviet model. And he pointed to that fact that how the Soviets got rid of so called dissidents or people who disagree with the government, they put them in mental hospitals. Mm-hmm. 
So most people don't. 1.5 million a year, folks, disappear in this country. That's a huge number. Now, that begs the question, uh, your case that you worked on, if someone posts something on Facebook, tweets something, the government monitoring that, does that violate our constitutional rights? Oh, it violates Fourth Amendment. Yeah, they're doing surveillance on us. But the Fourth Amendment, like uh, my... A number of my friends who work in constitutional law tell me it's dead, John. They don't. Nobody follows it anymore. I mean, you have the government watching everything we're doing. You have Facebook reporting people. You have uh, Amazon build, you know, working a six hundred million dollar contract with the CIA and the NSA. So when you buy stuff online, they watch what you buy. Mm-hmm. And the Department of Homeland Security, and this this is uh, basically new stuff that we found out in the last three or four months. They're doing a, trying to do a what they call a threat assessment on every home in this country, where it goes from green to red. For example, if you've uh, committed a crime, your threat assessment goes up maybe to a yellow. If you own a weapon, even a legally owned weapon, it's probably a red. So when uh, some of the cases we got where, where police show up at, uh, at the door and they're talking to people, they don't have a warrant, and they're real agitated, and they actually pull people out and slam them down, we have cases like that. It's that threat assessment. They're agitated. Uh, they're watching your home, folks. They're watching how many laws you violate, what you buy. If you buy extremist so-called literature, if you are, if you actually buy a book called How to Overthrow the Government, <laughs> Gary, <laughs> dude, you'll be calling me for legal help. Yeah, or Battlefield <laughs> America, maybe. Yes, exactly. I'm telling you, that pushes your threat assessment up. Now, can you just think about this a second? What would Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Ben Franklin, go down the list, think of? A government that's watching your home and doing a threat assessment on it. Mm-hmm. They're watching you. Police have stingray devices in the car now. They pull it in front of your home. Look out. If you see suspicious uh, vans in front of your home, that's probably got a stingray device in it. They, and it acts as a fake cell phone tower. It pulls in all your info from your cell phone, your laptop, and they know exactly what you're saying and doing. Now that, so that's the type of government we live in today. We're, we're in the future, I tell people. We're not in the past anymore. We'll be back with more from John Whitehead, president of the Rutherford Institute and author of Battlefield America, the War on the American People. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We're continuing our conversation with John Whitehead. He's president of the Rutherford Institute and author of Battlefield America, The War on the American People. I I saw an article a few weeks ago, and I instantly thought of you, and I tagged it for my producer to put in your file. But it talked about, I think, the police department in Arkansas that was putting out a subpoena to Amazon for somebody who had a uh, one of those Alexa Echo devices yep. in their house, that that's yep. a that's a recording device essentially all the time. Oh yeah, yeah, and it records information. In fact, there's a new hairbrush. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm researching this right now, but a new hairbrush that you can get that they're selling now. The store is starting to sell that listens for broken hair, but it also picks <laughs> up other sounds in the house and can be transmitted to some remote site, even some toothbrushes coming out now will be able to pick up 
What we're living, we're going to be living in, I would say, within the next 10 years. And some people are saying, John, you're putting it too far. It's the next five years as we buy all these gadgets and move into so-called smart homes. And I have some people I know who live in smart homes in Canada. Uh-huh. And they tell me everything is watched. The cameras, every device is recording what you're doing. That's the future. Yes. People look at my book, Battlefield America. Yeah. I document everything with footnotes. Well, and that's one of the things I wanted to mention in your book. You talked about the society that needs to be constantly connected. I did a, an article a few weeks ago about an employer that had to fire some employees because they couldn't work one-handed. They, they were holding the phone up to their ear while they're trying to work and couldn't get the job done, that kind of stuff. I've often said that this disconnects people from face-to-face interaction in stores and that kind of stuff. Is this helping the state control us, us being addicted to all this technology? Well, yes. And the other thing is, is that uh, on Facebook, you know, they have, they, you, they, they have algorithms. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a collection of data. And uh, when you look at a certain article, I mean, look at it carefully, folks. Sometimes in your news feed, watch this carefully. You look at a certain article and you pause, you look at it. And then when you flip to the next article, it's one just like it. Mm-hmm. They're stacking the deck on you. They're watching you. They're watching what you read, uh, everything. Yeah, and you can be controlled that way. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but and people say, well, maybe you're a conspiracy theory. No, it's not. Uh, the person of the future is going to be walking around like a zombie, in my opinion. In fact, I see people crossing the street today, and I talk about it in Battlefield America. They're looking at their cell phone while they're crossing the street. Right. My dad, when I was a kid, would have said, you're an idiot, and grab me and take my cell phone <laughs> and throw it out the window. Uh, earphones. I have students that come in now to reduce research occasionally, law students, mm-hmm. and I have to tell them no, no earphones because I go in to talk to them, and they look at me like, hmm, who is this now? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I say, no, no earphones in the office, please. I like to have conversations with my employees. Yeah, yeah I mean, I purposely go up to people and talk to them in stores and that kind of stuff just to break that cycle a little bit and let them know I'm not a, you know, a rapist murderer or anything. And and that's the danger. She has to be saying when you got a government that manipulates and we know that to be true. Yeah. It doesn't again, like I say Battlefield America goes through all that and you're content, continually connected to them. Like I say Amazon, uh Facebook, they work with the government folks. Yeah. Uh Google has million-dollar contracts with the NSA. They work with the government, and they give your information to the government. So they know. How, how do you think they're doing, doing uh, so-called threat assessments, accurate threat assessments? And they're doing it. They, they collect your private information you do on the Internet and stuff that, that you do out in life. So uh, it, watch what you watch. Another thing is television. Like I tell people, I turned the television off years ago. And what happens is, and I found this out about a year after I turned the television, and people, sorry, folks, you may think I'm crazy. <laughs> about a year after I start, when I'm in a restaurant now and I see all the TV screens around me, I look at them and I'm going, hmm, it looks so plastic, like it's not for real. You're, you're being presented yep. with, especially those talking heads on TV that are, that are arguing, but they're on every week arguing like they're the enemies. Mm-hmm. Come on. Yeah. People grow up. Yep. Yeah, it's 1984. You know, it, one of the things I haven't seen too much about, I, I first read about it in, in your book, uh, and then I've seen a couple articles. I think Cato put out some information on it and, and a couple, of, and, and that's vehicle-to-vehicle communications. Yep. And, uh, you know, they, they paint that picture that 
Well, you know what? If you're stuck in a traffic jam, your car will communicate to other cars to stay out of that traffic jam and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just one more way for for the government to, uh, or other hackers even, to uh, tap into your car and, and do things, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always going to be, uh, wow, the technology is great. And it's, it does have positive. The problem is in Europe with the driverless cars, mm-hmm. if the government's shutting them off, it will. When they, they think you're a suspect. Yeah. So you're driving along, your car pulls over and stops, and they come get you. Uh, I think the driverless cars are going to come with some problems. And to be honest with you, I had a uh, fellow who actually constructs driverless cars. I have My car is 17 years old. And he came by and says, John, hey, hey I, I'll tell you what, if you'll stop writing about driverless cars and saying negatives, I'll, I'll, I'll do you a negative. I, I can actually create a driverless car of your old car. I looked him in the eye and said, man, I like my old car. <laughs> I want to be the driver. I don't want the government driving me around. Yeah, I'm too much of a control freak. <laughs> Plus, I enjoy driving. You know, I enjoy driving, too, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it'll have safety. Yeah. yeah. It'll come wrapped in all kinds of nice bows. In the end, however, uh, will we be trapped by it? Will we be able to get away from it? And I would say not. The other thing I want to make sure before we get off this interview that I say is the it was leaked a Pentagon interview, and people can go on our website and watch it. They're predicting by 2030 that society is going to break down. And they did a video showing how the military is going to move in and the large wow. cities, because like 70% of Americans are going to, and, and in the world basically, are living in large cities, there's not going to be jobs. They're saying 40% of the jobs are going to be disappearing within 25 years because of all the robotics. Man, I, I I feel like a small candle in the middle of a hurricane. There's so much noise out there, so much negative media, so many things working against us. How does a guy like you get up in the morning, and what should we do? I mean, what what can we do today to help? What you can do is, uh, A, get educated. Education precedes action. I think you're reading the book, Battlefield mm-hmm. America. Go to our website, rutherford.org, rutherford.org. We do weekly articles, and we do a thing called Freedom Watch where we list a bunch of other articles by people who are seeing all the crazy things we're seeing happening. Get educated and go into your local communities. I'm saying get your neighbors together and get very active sometimes. Picketing, take over your local city councils, and you can nullify acts. Our Constitution gives the right on the Tenth Amendment to nullify acts of Congress, and you can actually say, I mean, do you really want... SWAT teams in your town that are crashing through people's door without warrants and shooting kids and old people by mistake. Do you really want that? Get some oversight on these activities, and you don't want the military coming in and arresting people and dragging them off to detention camps. And what you can do is, and some communities have done this, is they've, they've actually ordered their police not to cooperate with any kind of military units or whatever. So there, it's up to you, folks. I tell people, who's the government? Well, what's the Constitution say? We the people. We the people. That's how it begins. Well, yeah. you want you want it the government, folks. You are the government. Do it. You know, and you make a really, really good point in the book that the government really doesn't like. It really scares them if we form groups and organize and get educated and that's and why they, the police are right now local police now are like armies yes they're afraid of the future like i said that pentagon video is pretty darn scary it predicts by 2030 you're going to see massive uprising in the military the national guard and the local police will be working together as a unit to put it down so 
watch uh, out. That's incredible. We've been speaking with John Whitehead. He's a constitutional attorney and president of the Rutherford Institute, rutherford.org. We'll have that on our website. Author of the book, Battlefield America, the War on the American People. i got to tell you, John, this is always both fun and scary talking to you. Uh, it's a real honor. And i got to tell you, I uh, personally carry your contact information in my wallet, and Good so idea. does my wife, <laughs> because uh, who knows when they're going to come after conservative talk show hosts in small markets. So. It doesn't take much for them to do it. <laughs> that's right. So if you get a call from uh, someone named Nancy that's panicking, take the call. So <laughs> All right, sir. I appreciate it, John. I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Coming up next, we probably ought to touch on the economy a little bit. I know that's uh, a little further down the schedule. But uh, up next, let's talk a little bit about uh, inflation. New numbers came out this week and what uh, Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen thinks of the U.S. economy. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, way back, 100 years ago, when uh, I was in college and studying economics, we considered full employment back then to be around 6%. The idea was at any given time, 6% of the population would either not be in the workforce, be in between jobs, or be downright unemployed. So 6% was considered pretty much full employment. Now, Janet Yellen this week mentioned that uh, she feels the economy is near maximum employment. Now, the unemployment is uh, down around 4.7%, so it's below that 6% that I had when I went to school. But she may have a point for a couple of reasons. One, we're starting to see inflation tick up. This week, we broke over the 2% annualized inflation rate at 2.1%. Now, this is a, a bogey number that the Federal Reserve looks at to see where the inflation gauge is. One of the important factors in uh, determining inflation and, and whether the economy is heating up is... Are we near full employment or not? The closer we get to full employment, the more employers have to compete for employees. And one of those ways to compete is offering more in wages. So wages start going up. Now, we've seen a small increase in wages over the last year or so. Not a lot, but a small increase in the recovery in the economy has been very uh, sluggish, to say the least. So we haven't really seen much inflationary action, even though monetary policy out of the Federal Reserve would lead one to believe, or if you looked at it, the uh, policy on paper, believe that we have some real inflation going on because the money supply has increased dramatically over the last several years. Interest rates remain low, even though Janet Yellen is starting to uptick them a little bit. quarter of a point in 2016 and a quarter of a point in 2015. But the forward thought process is there's going to be two, probably three 
rate increases for 2017, 2018, and 2019. Now, if that's the case, that's some significant increases in interest rates. We should see some tightening of the money supply because of that. But on the other side, we're going to see worldwide an increase in the value of the dollar. The more we raise our interest rates, the more desirable dollar-denominated investments become. We've already got, I won't say a problem, but certainly a, a uh, issue, a, a, a notification that the dollar is very, very strong worldwide. The stronger the dollar gets, the more difficult it is for us to export our products. Our products become more expensive to other countries. Our imports become cheaper. So we will import more with a strong dollar and export less with a strong dollar. So as we raise interest rates, it's very likely our dollar will continue to get stronger or at the very least hold its value. So uh, we'll see what happens, but breaking over the the 2% this last week is significant. It's something we got to watch because inflation is one of those things that it can very easily and very quickly get out of hand. In other words, we could go from 2% inflation to 6 or 8% inflation in a very, very short period of time. Now, a lot has to happen for that to happen, but it certainly could. Now, we don't have the inflation fears, I don't believe, that we had in the 70s and uh, going into the 80s. I remember double-digit inflation, uh, interest rates uh, to borrow money at fixed rate with 13 14% on home loans. Uh, I don't see that happening in the near future. But inflation, uh, wow, once you get that genie out of the bottle, it takes a lot of work to get it back in again. Now, one of the unique signs of inflation, not many people look at, but uh, I did a little research and it was kind of interesting, and that is the use of $100 bills. Back in the old days, back in the 80s, okay, um, $100 bills were uh, somewhat rare to be used in, in normal day-to-day -day transactions. Uh, you didn't see $100 bills used to, to pay for dinner or, or uh, anything like that uh, as, as you do today. So over a period of time, inflation has gone up, prices have gone up. Okay, back in the 80s, gas was under a buck a, barrel, uh, buck a gallon, and now it's pushing two and a half, three bucks a gallon. Um, and we're starting to see more and more use of uh, the $100 bill. Now, on average, a $1 bill lasts just a little under six years. And a $100 bill lasts for 15 years. 
That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you use dollar bills a lot more frequently than you use $100 bills. But just a few years ago, the average $100 bill lasted 21.6 years. So according to that data, and that data is from the Federal Reserve, the average lifespan of a $100 bill has fallen by more than 30% in the last few years. Now that's due to the increase in use in day-to-day transactions. It's not uncommon to use a $100 bill to pay for things anymore. I find that interesting given the fact that there's rumors or stories that pop up from time to time that um, talk about not just eliminating the $100 bill, but eliminating cash altogether. This is probably data that'll, that'll be used in that argument of eliminating cash. Now, you know me, I don't think we should uh, eliminate cash. I, uh, I like private transactions, not that they're illicit or illegal. I just, you know what, if I want to buy something, I want it to be me between me and the seller. I don't need a permanent paper trail of, of everything that I purchase. I just found it interesting because to me it signifies the results of inflation. And it makes sense because Venezuela, who we know is having terrible inflation, just announced this week they're reworking their paper money, their fiat money, into bigger bills because the largest bills they have have been inflated away so much that it's just almost impractical to use. If you look at Zimbabwe over the years, Zimbabwe is kind of the the modern history poster child of inflation gone bad. And uh, I've got on, on my desk, we've got some uh, $50 trillion uh, dollar bills from Zimbabwe, $100 trillion dollar bills from Z- Zimbabwe. It, it just got way out of hand. Now, I bought those bills for a dollar a piece or something like that on eBay. But uh, the more inflation gets out of hand, the bigger bills or the larger quantity of bills people have to use. If you have no cash, if everything is digital, then you don't have much of an indicator of inflation, which is what government wants. So keep in mind, keep watch, notice how many $100 bills you see in a given week and how many you use yourself. Interesting indicator of inflation. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 